Let's take our Bibles and we're going to turn over to the book of Galatians this evening. The book of Galatians in your Bible uh, this evening as we take another look at this subject of sanctification. Uh, we have uh, on three, on, on a couple of, um, of Sunday nights now, we've looked at, at this uh, doctrine of sanctification in the Bible. And uh, we've learned some things about sanctification. The first week we looked at the meaning of sanctification. What is this, uh, this thing we call sanctification? We found out it is merely becoming like Christ. It's, it's uh, our lives conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. The next week, last week, we looked at the process of sanctification, of how this happens. And uh, we looked at some important passages of Scripture that deal with our ability to see Christ in the Bible uh, as we read and study our Bible and see Christ in the Bible. And then what we see in the Bible of the person of Christ, the Spirit of God then uses our awareness of that and begins to mold our lives into that same image. So we begin to bear the characteristics of Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus in his word, and then we're transformed into his image by the work of the Holy Spirit. This evening, we're going to look at the result of sanctification. Uh, or, as you see on the top of your little worksheet this evening, sanctification, what does it look like? Uh, this is the result of the Holy Spirit. Uh, working in our lives as he develops his fruit in us. And so we're looking at Galatians because that's where in the Bible we learn the most about the fruit of the Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit develops his fruit in us, we begin to bear the fruit of what the Holy Spirit uh, produces in us. Our lives look more and more and more like Jesus Christ because that's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. It's the character of Jesus Christ formed in us. So a sanctified life looks like Jesus Christ. And that is seen in the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. Now, there's a, a couple of things that we're going to note this evening. The first thing we want to note is that statement under number one, saved to become holy. Saved to become holy. I think there's often some misunderstanding as to why God saved us. And uh, there are sometimes the casual understanding or idea that Jesus saved us so that we go to heaven when we die. Well, it is true that we will go to heaven when we die because we're saved, but that's not why God saves us. He saves us to make us holy. And look with me in Galatians chapter 1. I want to just touch on a couple of verses across Galatians leading us to the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 1, verse number 3. The Bible says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, God the Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will and uh, according to the will of God and our father to whom be glory forever and ever amen now this is a this is a phenomenal statement Jesus Christ died on the cross for us we sing about that we glory in that truth we sang about it this morning we thought about it this morning how Jesus died for us amazing truth uh, that uh, that he died to pay the ransom for our sins he gave himself for us but why he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. doesn't say he died for our sins to deliver us from the future evil world of hell. 
Now, that's true that that is going to be a byproduct of our salvation, but that is not the motivating factor of salvation. The motivating factor in saving us is to deliver us now from the present evil world. Uh, to so work in our lives to change us from a nature of sinfulness to a nature of holiness. Or, we could say, to begin to bear the character of our God. To display to a fallen world what God is like. We saw that as we looked in the previous messages about what this thing of sanctification is. It's us partnering with God to display the nature of God to a godless world. So they can see in us what God is like. Because our lives have been changed, been conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So the, the motivation behind our salvation is God's desire to deliver us from the present evil world. What is happening in our culture that is evil and against God. To deliver us from that so that our life might be conformed to the nature of Jesus Christ and they might see Christ in us. So this, these Christians in Galatia were struggling with that. The book of Galatians was written because there had been a struggle as to what salvation results in and how this all works. And there was what was called Judaism and Judaizers that were spreading false doctrine. And so Galatians was written to the churches in Galatia to combat the, the Judaism uh, of the day. And, uh, and they, were, they were trading the gospel that they had learned from Paul for another gospel. And he goes in and talks about that in the next few verses of chapter 1. How they, had, they were so soon had they given up the gospel of Christ uh, for another gospel, uh, which is not a true gospel. And so uh, Paul is coming to this, these people and reminding them why God saved you in the first place. He saved you to deliver you from the present evil world in which you live. Now flip over to chapter 4, verse number 19. He, talk, he, he goes on with, uh, with a lot of information, but I'm just catching a couple of highlights here. Chapter 4, verse 19, he, he says to these church members, he calls them my little children. He calls them my little children is because they are the spiritual children of the Apostle Paul. He had gone to their city. He had preached the gospel in their villages and towns. He had led these people to Christ. They were his spiritual children because he was the soul winner that brought them the gospel. We can read over in 1 Corinthians 4.15 how he identified himself. He says, you have many instructors, but you have only one dad. And he was speaking spiritually. How You've had a lot of pastors, but you only have the one dad that brought you the gospel and birthed you into the family of God. So Paul used the language of birth when you're born again, and he used that to speak of himself as the dad who brought them into the Christian family, who birthed them. They were his children. So here in chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says, My little children of whom I travail in birth again. I travailed in your birth when you became a child of God. When I brought you the gospel and I, and I was with you when you wrestled through the convicting power of the Spirit of God. And when you turned away from sin and evil and you embraced Christ as your Savior. That was the result of a travail of conviction 
the Holy Spirit convicting you and drawing you and you struggling. And, and then you were birthed into the family of God. And I was there. And I travailed in birth, in your first birth. But now he says to them, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again. Because they had not grown in their sanctification. They had not developed in their Christ-likeness. They were struggling with being like the present evil world instead of being delivered from the present evil world. And so Paul says to them, I find myself travailing in prayer again, but this time not to give you birth, this time until Christ be formed in you. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Christ formed in you. That's sanctification. That's when the Holy Spirit produces the image of Jesus Christ in your character, in your personality, in your being. And Christ is formed inside of you. And you become like Christ. You bear his image to a world that doesn't know what Jesus is like. So Paul says, I have travailed in birth initially when I brought the gospel to you. But now I'm coming back into your life years later realizing you have not grown, you have not developed, and so I'm travailing again so that Christ will be formed in you. When I read that, I realize that spiritual transformation into holiness is a process that can ebb and flow. And Paul felt that these people had not progressed well. And so he writes to them to travail in prayer, to travail in pain, with them again in order to see the formation of Christ in their lives. Their spiritual sanctification make progress. Now, so we, we have the purpose for which we got saved, uh, to become holy, to be delivered from this present world. And that doesn't happen as a total package deal the moment we get saved. Salvation introduces us into a process by which we are transformed and Christ is formed in us. And if you're saved tonight, you're in that process somewhere. You are somewhere in the process of Jesus Christ being formed in you so that you can display the nature of Christ to the people at your workplace and your community and wherever you meet people. And you can become God's partner in displaying the divine nature to a Christless world. You're somewhere in the process of being proficient at partnering with God's display of his spiritual nature. So, let's, uh, let's go over to chapter 5 then, and let's see how to win the war. Chapter 5, verse number 16. Chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if you're led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, here is an amazing discussion in light of what we looked at this morning. This morning, we looked at language that's very similar to this, set in the context of people getting saved from Romans chapter 7. And the law bringing them under conviction of sin. 
and the struggle. I, I know what I should do, but I, I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do, but I do it, and I'm struggling. And, and, and we looked at the struggle of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unsaved person who has been presented with the law, and they're learning that they are helpless, hopeless, and they need a Savior. And then finally, by the end of chapter 7, Paul gives his testimony that he said, Who can deliver me? And he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, this passage is is got very similar language, but not in the context of people getting saved, but rather in the context of people who have been saved, but are not growing in their sanctification. And so we have a similar struggle, the struggle between the spirit and the flesh, that before a person gets saved and they hear uh, that God requires perfection, and you got this list of ten laws, and you're trying to be good enough, and you don't measure up, and the Spirit of God convicts you of your sinfulness. The same struggle, the war between the Spirit and the flesh before salvation is seen here in the lives of people after they're saved, struggling with whether they're going to cooperate with the Spirit of God and develop in holiness or whether they're going to maintain their friendliness with a Christless world and not be delivered from the present evil world, but fit into the present evil world while they name the name of Christ on the surface. We have the same struggle. We have the same war. And we're told that the flesh is lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And they're contrary. And, of course, every I can still remember when I was a child in Sunday school classes at Bethlehem Baptist Church being taught that I've got a, I got a little devil on one shoulder and I've got a little angel on the other. And the devil's whisper in my ear, you ought to do this. And the angel's whisper in my ear, don't do that, don't do that. And, and I was taught of this struggle from the time I was a little child in Sunday school. I can remember being taught, I can specifically remember being taught that like, a, like a, an Eskimo... Uh, that is out up in the way far reaches of the north. I, I guess that's why I like the cold. Uh, my Sunday school teachers to blame. And, and the Eskimo way up in the far reaches of the north. And the Eskimo has a, a, a white dog and a black dog. And, and, and both dogs are, are, are wanting to take control and win as they fight together. And which dog is going to win? Well, the, the dog's going to win that you feed the most. If you feed the white dog, the f white dog will win. If you feed the black dog, the black dog will win. And there's a war in the spiritual realm. And who's going to win the war? Well, it all depends. You watch entertaining television from a Christless world more hours a week than you read your Bible. I'll tell you who's going to win. I'll tell you who's going to win. The war is going to be won by the present evil world that wants to control your mind and your heart and your desires. Who you feed the most. See, these are things that, that I was taught when I was a little boy in Sunday school class about the war. The spirit lusteth against the flesh, and the flesh lusteth against the spirit. And they're contrary one to another. And if you listen to the present evil world and feed your mind with that which is contrary to God more, then you're going to be strong in your flesh, and you're going to end up doing things that are wrong. And then he gives a list of things. The works of the flesh are manifest. And he gives a list. Adultery, fornication, and cleanliness, lasciviousness. I don't. He gives a list of things. And then he ends in verse number 21. Uh, and such like. He just gives a list and says, and things like that. It's the works of the flesh. But the Spirit. God wants to deliver me from the present evil world. He doesn't want me to live like this present evil world. 
He wants my life to become holy. He wants every aspect of my life to become holy. What does that mean? To become like Christ. He wants me to be a little Christian, and that's why he saved me. To make me a little Jesus Christ in a world that doesn't know God. So God and I can partner in displaying to a world what God is really like. That's sanctification. What does it look like? Well, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Verse number 22, he begins to list the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this is a great study for a Bible study fellowship class or Sunday school class or a family devotion to go through these nine facets of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is merely what the Holy Spirit produces. What's, what's an apple? That's the fruit that the apple tree produced. What's an orange? That's the fruit that the orange tree produced. These characteristics are the image of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit produces in a life that is led by the Spirit or that is walking in the Spirit. When a person is walking in the Spirit, they're praying, they're reading their Bible, they're hungry for God, they're feeding their desires for godliness, and they're growing and progressing all the while the Holy Spirit is developing in them the character of Jesus Christ. What does the character of Jesus Christ look like? Well, here are nine facets of the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. And it's a great study to go through. Uh, there are good Bible study materials uh, available to be able to study through the fruit of the Spirit. It's not plural. It's not fruits of the Spirit. There's one fruit. It's the character of Jesus Christ. There's one fruit. It's the image of Jesus Christ. But the image of Jesus Christ has different facets. You know, like a beautiful gemstone with several facets. And each facet, as you spin the gemstone, each facet, you, you see the light reflect and you see the beauty. And each facet is a different facet of the one beautiful gem. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is one beautiful gem. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's what a sanctified person looks like. And as you spin the image of Jesus Christ, you see different facets or different, um, I, I call them aspects of this piece of fruit, this image of Jesus Christ. And it makes for a great study. He, he lists them, uh, uh, you, you probably memorized them, you could probably recite them together. The, the word love speaks of, uh, of action on behalf of the person loved. Uh, it's the word uh, agape, it's, it's not, there are other words for love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, uh, Philadelphia, uh, philo means to love because of, of affinity, because of likenesses. Um, anyone that's been around Nick this last week knows that Nick Colantoni loves the, the uh, Washington Nationals. And uh, I wondered how he was going to weave that into the announcements this morning. Sure enough, he, he did a masterful job of weaving that into the announcements so he could brag on his team. Uh, he loves. Now, you, you take uh, two or three people that love the Washington Nationals baseball game, and, and they're, you can see them talking, and they're excited, they're talking, and they're enjoying. That's that's. Brotherly love, filial love, that's love based on similarities, on relationship. We have something in common, and so we enjoy talking about what we have in common. The word translated love here is the word that is used of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This love is not a love based on similarity. It's a love based on compassion for the well-being of the object of the love. This kind of love loves a person that doesn't deserve my love. There's nothing in me that pulls my affinity necessarily to that person. But they have a need, and I have the ability to meet that need. And when I reach out and have compassion 
on somebody because of their need. That's agape love. That's the first aspect or facet of the character of Jesus Christ. When you begin to care about someone that's different from you, someone that you don't necessarily hold a brotherly likeness to, like you're both from the same womb and there's similarities, but rather you see them with the eyes of God and you care about them because... You just do. And you want to help them. That when you begin to love people with the agape love of God, that's the first hint that the Spirit of God is molding you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Love. Joy. Joy is not slap happy silliness. The results from positive circumstances. Joy is a deep, settled acceptance of what God has brought into my life because I know that God is a master planner and He has a purpose in everything He brings or allows into my life. That's why James 1 and, and Romans 5 talks about joying in our tribulation. Knowing. The key to joy is knowing. The key to joy is what I know God is doing through this difficult situation. I know God has got my best interest and his long-term glory in mind. And so what God has allowed or brought into my life has something of great value. And knowing that, I joy in my tribulation also. Joy, not slap, happy, silliness because I'm having a great time. But it's a deep, settled acceptance and enjoyment of what God brings into my life because I know that God has amazing plans in that. By the way, you'll notice in each of these I supplied a reference. This comes from an old study I did on the fruit of the Spirit where I looked and found Jesus Christ displaying this facet of His nature and then how that the Bible requires me to display this facet of His nature. So that's where there's a Jesus with some verses and a you with some verses after each of these. Because this is what the Holy Spirit is trying to accomplish so that I display his nature. That's what sanctification looks like when I look like Jesus Christ in my actions and activities of life. On the back page of your little handout, there are others. Peace is tranquility in the face of tumult. It's a phenomenal study. Peace in the Bible is not the absence of conflict. It's tranquility in the midst of conflict. I'll never forget that's something I read, uh, I saw, a story I read years ago of an art contest when artists were invited to paint a painting in a contest and the theme of the painting had to be peace. And so everyone painted something that portrayed peace. And so they, they submitted their, their artwork, uh, judges judged their artwork, uh, they came down to the, to the uh, three, uh, the, the first place, second place, and third place, and they had them veiled under, under a, a, a cloth, and they had the, the proceedings, and they were going to award the prize, and so they, they took the third place first, and, and it showed a beautiful uh, meadow, and, and you could almost feel the gentle breeze and the, and the Wheat was just bent over a little bit with the with the gentle breeze. Uh, second place winner. It was a it was a forest scene where there was a little trickling brook and a mother deer and a fawn and the mother deer was looking up and the fawn was drinking from the stream and it was peaceful and quiet. When they took the cover off the third one, there was a gasp across the room. 
when they took the cover off the third one, everyone looked at this beautifully done painting of a cliff during the midst of a horrendous storm on the edge of an ocean. And the waves were crashing against the rocks of the cliff. And, and the, the, you could almost feel the clouds, the, the billowing black clouds rolling in the viciousness of the wind and the lightning striking. And everyone gasped. And then someone noticed that up on the cliff, in a crevice, was a bird's nest. And sitting on the bird's nest was a mother bird. And the mother bird was holding its wing toward the storm. And inside its wing were some little hatchlings. Just happy and chirping away and having the time of their life. And that artist conveyed the belief that peace is not the absence of conflict. It's being protected in the midst of the storm. And when you study peace in the Bible, Christian peace that comes from the heart of God, you'll find that peace in the Bible is not the absence of conflict in your life. It's how you handle conflict in your life. It's your relationship with God that brings peace and tranquility in the midst of the storm. Long-suffering is the ability to be steadfast under wrong treatment and pressure. Whether that pressure comes from Circumstances or whether that pressure comes from ill treatment by people that want to do you wrong. Long suffering is the ability to withstand the pressure and endure all of that. Gentleness is a kindness that accomplishes something useful. It's to be gentle or kind to people in a way that will accomplish something of value in their lives. Goodness is moral or spiritual excellence. We talked about that the last two Sunday mornings, how that goodness is the standard by which heaven is gained. But there is no one who's ever been good but Jesus. And so Jesus is the standard of goodness. He is. And as a child of God... And the Holy Spirit produces the character of Christ in my life. I become the very goodness that I couldn't attain by trying to keep the law and earn heaven. Goodness, moral, spiritual excellence. Oh, it's not hard to escape the corruption of our world, our present evil world in that area. Our world has become so immoral. It's not hard to draw a distinct line of difference. Faith, trustworthiness, dependability, meekness. I love, I've always loved the word meekness. It speaks of a yielded, submissive spirit, um, temperance, uh, self-control. This, this is the nature of Jesus Christ. What does sanctification look like? That's what it looks like. That's what the Holy Spirit is producing in your life. As you read your Bible and pray and grow and, and walk in the Spirit and are led of the Spirit, the Spirit of God is gradually producing in you these very facets of the nature of Jesus Christ. Why? So you can display that to a Christless world that doesn't know what God is like so that they can realize that there's something different with who they are. And what they see in you. And that stark difference is the character of holiness. It's the sanctification of your life. You won't do things they do. 
And the reason you won't is because Jesus Christ wouldn't. You do things they wouldn't do. The reason you do is because Jesus Christ does those things. You believe certain things, think certain ways, because the Spirit of God has formed Christ in you as he delivers you from this present evil world so that you could display the nature of God in front of the world. Well, it all comes down to an appeal at the end of this chapter, uh, an appeal for spirit-led living. Verse number 23 ends this list of the the facets of the fruit of the Spirit with the statement, against such there is no law. I've always thought that was a funny way to end that list. There's, there's, there's a law against adultery. There's a law against idolatry. There's a law against hatred. There are laws against the, the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh all have laws against them. But there's no law against goodness. There's no law against love. There's no law... Against these things. Because these things aren't wrong. There's everything right in these things. Because they're all aspects of the character of Jesus Christ. So, there's no law that condemns the fruit of the Spirit that he produces. Verse number 24 says that as Christian people, we're done with, uh, with uh, worldly living, fleshly living. Verse 24 says, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh. But notice, with the affections and lusts. We don't want to do that anymore. We don't want to go there anymore. We don't want to participate in that anymore. Because in our salvation, we crucified our fleshly nature that's prone to sin, along with its affections and desires. We're done with fleshly living. We want to be holy. Because that's why Jesus went to the cross. To destroy the works of of the devil, as First John tells us, or as Galatians tells us, to deliver us from the present evil world. Notice in verse number, chapter 6, verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14, Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. What a statement of determination to be a godly man. The world is crucified unto me. What does that mean? It means this present evil world is dead to me. I don't want it. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. It doesn't draw on my heartstrings. I have seen the, the brilliant, magnificent light of heaven shining so brightly in my eyes that I can't see that dim little light the neon flashing lights of my present evil world that wants me to go their way. I can't even see that little dim light of this present evil world because of the magnificence of the glory and majesty of my God. The world is dead to me. And I am dead to this world. I want to be holy. I want to be like Christ. In a present evil world. Wow, what a statement of his desire to be a holy, sanctified, godly man in this present evil world. So I'm, I'm done with it. I'm done with fleshly living. Verse 25, back to chapter 5, verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Did you catch that? If you're alive in the Spirit, you've been saved, then, then let's see it in action. 
You say that the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary delivered you from the present evil world? Let's see it in action. Let's see it on your television screen. Let's see it on your internet screen. Let's see it in your choice of clothing. Let's see it in the places you go and the things you do. If you are alive in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Or if you claim to be born again, let's see it in action. That's the challenge Paul gives to these believers in the churches in Galatia. If you're alive spiritually, let's see it in action. And then finally, verse number 26, he says, I do not want to live my life in selfish pride. Let us not be desirous of vainglory. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about making me feel good. Uh, it's not about me trying to get one up on somebody else. He said, I'm dead to all of that. All I want is to bear the image of Jesus Christ to a world that doesn't know him so that I can partner with God in sharing Christ to a world. Father.